Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, guys, once again, welcome. If it is your first time, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Our tagline is, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, If you are joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series that we are titling A Subversive Church. A Subversive Church. We've been examining Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and we've been looking at ways that he is, in effect, subverting their mindsets. He's saying, hey, here are practices and beliefs that actually look a little more like your society and a little less like Jesus. Um, And he's attempting with love to sort of call them to a place uh, where they actually, um, as we all want, bear the image of their founder a bit more. And so we're coming to the end of the letter. Uh, We are in chapter 14 today. And so if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, um, do they still call them smartphones or is it just phones now? I don't even know. Uh, If you have your phones, um, or we're going to put it up here. We're reading chapter 14, verses 1 through 19, verses 1 through 19. So how it reads, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit, but everyone who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and that person is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds him or herself among those uh, of an outsider who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, chapter 14. Paul has reached the heart.
heart of the matter. Um, we've talked about this before, that a lot of the, the, the topics, a lot of the arguments in Paul are sustained topics. So chapter one through three, and even a little bit in the four, is all one idea that Paul is getting at. And then he goes the same through five through seven. And then eight through 11 is another topic. And now what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is chapter 12 through 14. The gift of the Holy Spirit for people, and then the way that the Holy Spirit manifests his presence in, in the church's lives. Paul has clearly read his Stanley Hauerwas because he knows that there is nothing more harmful than to answer an ill-formed question. So what we see is that Paul's done the spade work on the back end of really trying to get to the question beneath the question, right? And, and we know this, like usually when there's an issue, it's not about the issue. There's a deeper issue in play, right? Like if you and your spouse are arguing about crumbs left on a plate, you can be sure you're not really arguing about crumbs left on a plate, all right? There's something else going on. And it's the same thing here. It's the same thing. In chapter 12, Paul is talking about the ways that the Holy Spirit equips us, the church. And he talks about saying we're a body. We're the body of Jesus. We are in fact uh, the residue, the continuation of Jesus's ministry. And consequently, that means the body must be cohesive and singular and with a singular mind and purpose and will. And everyone has a different role. Everyone has, has different gifts, but no one can say that, that you know, anyone's more valuable in God's eyes than another because it's the body that matters. So in a sense, chapter 12 is about standardizing the gifts. And then chapter 13, as we talked last week, Paul says, now I'm gonna show you the most excellent way to live into this reality. And it's that classic passage on love, which is uh, unhelpfully read at weddings because the, the love that God, the love that God um, embodies and the love that Paul is describing is not a love that we understand on the day that we're getting married. Like we said last week, it's a love that we understand on the day we wanna get a divorce. That's when we should be reading that text. That's the love that brings life to the body. And then we get to chapter 14 today. And we realize that the contentiousness in the Corinthians, it should dawn on us if we were coming to this letter for the first time, the contentiousness was actually over these two gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gifts of speaking in tongues. Um, now I wanna acknowledge what I love about Hope Brooklyn is we have all ends of the spectrum, both uh, within the church and outside of the church. Um, and that's awesome. Like that really is awesome. That, that means that we are living into the vision God's given us, that wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, and so I'm sure when we talk about speaking in tongues or, or what that means, uh, that can be a little weird. <laughs> or a little confusing, and I acknowledge that. And so what I, what I wanna do first is sort of um, take a step back. Before we get into chapter 14, take a step back and understand what this gift of tongues is all about or, or why God f saw fit to equip people with the ability to speak in non-native languages um, or what that meant so that we can actually maybe understand what Paul's doing in chapter 14. So we gotta take it all the way back. If we wanna understand tongue speech, we gotta take it all the way back to John chapter one, verse one, which says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Now, the reason why we take it there is because that is a very well-known um, verse, very well-known statement referring to Jesus. So in effect, what Paul is saying, or I'm sorry, what John is saying is that God spoke his word to the world and his word came in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, the message of the creator God came into the world, came to communicate in a form that we could understand. That is to say, in the form of a Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the word communicated that message through his life. He, he taught and he lived the most interesting life people had ever seen. The most interesting and compelling life. He healed people. He, he broke up societal norms. He, um, he spent time with the poor and the outcast and the marginalized. Um, but he also, when he taught, there was such an authority about him. Uh, the word of God was so uh, unable to be co-opted. It was so wild and yet so good. And he, he lived his life and he conducted his ministry and then it culminated with the word of God being crucified on a cross, being killed but not being defeated by death because three days later, the word of God was raised to life again, was resurrected never to die again. And now we're told that those who turn their eyes toward Jesus, those who turn their faces to the word of God, who allow the word of God to speak over them, they have abundant life. Abundant life to come, yes, but abundant life here and now. There's a peace and a joy about them now of that, as that word sort of unites with their lives. And then Jesus, after he raises from the dead for 40 days, he confirms that actually he was raised from the dead. And so at his death, interestingly, um, his 11 closest followers all abandoned him. So he died with zero followers, but then 40 days later, he had 120 people on the team, which would make sense. Because if I saw someone come out of the tomb, I'd be like, all right, I'm, I'll give you a year. You know, I'll see what you're about. Um, and so there's 120 and he goes, look, I got to leave. I have to leave the earth. And people are like, why? You were just raised from the dead and nothing can stop you. Let's establish the kingdom now. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. It's good for you if I go. Because if I go, I'm gonna send you the advocate. I'm gonna send you the spirit. I'm gonna send you my spirit. In a sense, I'm gonna transfer the word of God into you guys. You're gonna become the word of God for the world. You're gonna become the message that the world can see and understand and respond to. And so he leaves, he ascends. And then 10 days after that, it says that this group of 120 are in the upper room and they're praying together. And they're praying and they're worshiping. And then as they're praying and worshiping, we're told that a tongue of fire divides up. In the Greek, that, that's really uh, important because it reads divided tongues of fire, but, but in effect, what it's saying is there was one tongue of fire and it divides and a wind sweeps through the room. And the tongue of fire divides up and rests on each person's head in the room. And they continue worshiping and they continue praising God. The only thing that changes is that they start praising God in different languages. They start praising God in different tongues, languages that are not their native languages. And that's important because at that time, there's a festival happening in Jerusalem. And so there are Jews from all across the empire who are there, 
who just so happened to speak those languages. And so they're walking through the town and they hear these, these people declaring the wonders of Jesus, lifting up his name. They probably were singing, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. But they're doing it in different languages and those languages are understood by the people who are passing through and they ask, what, how, is, how is this? Aren't these guys just simple Galileans? They must be drunk. They accuse them of being drunk. And Peter's like, what are you talking about? It's 9 a.m. in the morning. Clearly, Peter never lived in New York City. Those bottomless mimosa brunches. Um, but what we have in here, in this story, is the birth of the church. This is the womb of the church. The word of God, the spirit of Jesus, pours out on these Jewish people and they begin to speak the wonders of God, the message of his love in languages that are not their own. And there's a lot that could be said, but in effect, as you're looking at this story, you really need to distill it down to two key players that are being juxtaposed against one another. One being the empire, the empire of Rome or, or any empire, and the other being the church. The old world and the new world that has been birthed by Jesus' love and his blood and his sacrifice and his spirit. And in this, this meeting, language is at the center of what's going on. I love the way uh, Professor uh, Daniela Augustine puts it. She writes, Christ's mission is fulfilled in self-giving to the other. The consciousness formed by the spirit in his body is an antidote to that of the empire. While the imperial consciousness commodifies, consumes, marginalizes, and even eliminates the other for its own benefit, the consciousness of Christ's body, of Jesus' body, prioritizes the other and the other's well-being. I think it's really helpful understanding, because when you look at the empire, whether it's Rome or any empire, the empire, in a sense, is trying to use uh, and or destroy the other and the other's language for the sake of consolidation, right? The empire forces an assimilation, uh, forces a co-opting of language, a co-opting of culture to consume it, to marginalize it, to repackage it, and in places where it's a little too wild, a little too crazy to eliminate it entirely for the sake of consolidating their power. I mean, if you look at the art and the music of minority cultures in America, you see that. You see a history sometimes of consuming art and music and language of minority people groups, um, so as, but consuming and then repackaging and co-opting and re-spinning and then distributing to the masses, right? You see this, this changing of language, so to speak. When, you, when, I, when I think about xenophobic tirades, what often is at the center of xenophobic tirades? Language, right? Don't come into my country without knowing how to speak my language, isn't it? There's something going on about language. I, uh, I was flying back from Seattle this last week and I watched uh, the movie, The Shape of Water, which I'm gonna need someone to explain to me how that movie won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Good, I mean, it was interesting, it was interesting, but that, you know, I'm open, to, I'm all ears, I'm all ears. Um, but it's, there's this fascinating scene where um, 
the heroine, who is mute, so she signs. She uses sign language to communicate. There's a scene where uh, she's talking to the villain, or who's known as the villain in the movie, and, um, and she's, she's discovered courage and boldness, and she's signing to him a choice phrase, but he doesn't understand it because he doesn't know sign language. And then he's asking, what are you saying? What are you saying? And then he blows his top. Like he just freaks out, right? Because she has power over him. Because she knows a language that he doesn't, right? Language, language can be rebellious. Language can defy the empire. As Joel Green writes, linguistic domination is a potent weapon in the imperial arsenal. As the first Christians would have known, those Christians of Pentecost, living as they did in the wake of the conquest of the world by Alexander the Great and the subsequent creation of a single Greek-speaking linguistic community. That's something that, um, that was very recent. So Alexander the Great, uh, when the Greeks sort of conquered what became the Roman Empire in around the 300s BC, um, they had a process of enforced Hellenization. So essentially everyone within the Greek Empire had to speak Greek. They forced it upon him, which ended up, again, which we realize in this story that God uses what is evil for good because then a couple hundred years later, when a church planter named Paul starts traveling from city to city, uh, telling the story of who Jesus is and how much he loves people, uh, they have a common language that they're able to speak. But it still doesn't change the fact that from the empire's perspective, they are trying to eliminate any possible chance of threat to their power. So language is there. The, the motive of the empire is to destroy to commodify, to consume, to marginalize language for the sake of consolidation of power. Now, what do we see when we look at the church? And again, the story of Pentecost is the womb of the church, the birth of God's people, the birth of the new creation, the new world. What do we see? Augustine again puts it well. She writes, the language of the other stands at the center of the church as an expression of the prioritization of the other in the new humanity. The language of the other stands at the center of the church. What she's saying? Well, as God's spirit divides up and enables all sorts of people to praise God in different languages, this is an incredibly symbolic um, and real act of what God is saying. God is saying that no one people and no one language can claim this God, can claim power to represent this God, that this is a God of all people, of all tongues. It's an incredible act of hospitality as well. Because up until this point, and even in that room, it was all Jews. This was Israel's God. This was the God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then in this moment, they are speaking languages that is not Hebrew or Aramaic. And God is saying that other languages, other people can now worship me in their own tongue. It's an incredible hospitality. The empire says, it's my world, you speak my language. The church says, it's God's world. All languages are welcome. Speak their language. We must notice that in this, in this moment, in this scene, the languages are all speaking a single message. There's not a divergence of message. They are all proclaiming the wonders of Jesus. They're all saying that this Jesus 
is the word of God in flesh, that this Jesus is our hope. So it's the same message, different forms. And we must notice that they are speaking non-native languages. No one's speaking their native tongue. Everyone is given the ability to speak the language of someone else, which almost signifies uh, the ability that God is saying that in this new family, the spirit is allowing us to cross borders of separation and alienation that used to keep us apart. No one can claim it and say, it's, I'm speaking my own, where, where they are empowered to speak their brother or their sisters. The language of the other is at the center of the church. The language of the other is at the center of the church. And as I already said, we notice now that tongue speech is an act of rebellion against the empire. That, that as it says in the Psalms, he prepares a table in the midst of my enemies. That the church does not oppose the empire in a way that the empire would expect. The church does not um, uh, promote violence against the empire, but the church certainly can't be co-opted by the empire. The church worships Jesus alone and we will live in the world, but we will only live in the world insofar as our living does not contradict our worship of Jesus. And at that point, our allegiance is to Jesus. Uh, the, other, the other week, um, I was in this, uh, this group, this space uh, that was primarily, well, entirely English space. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a church group and this guy was leading worship uh, and he was Dominican. And it was so cool because in a moment in one of the songs, um, he led the song in Spanish. And um, I'm pretty sure that of the room, maybe like three to 4% of the room knew Spanish, spoke Spanish fluently. Um, so everyone was kind of like trying to sing along, but their tongues were definitely tripping over that double L, which is super hard. I can't do it, I can't do it. Um, but they're definitely, they're, they're trying, but it's not their native language. But it was so fascinating because this guy, and maybe I'm projecting, but it seemed like it was just effortless, right? It was his tongue that he was praising God. And I recognized in that moment, what an act of rebellion, um, what exile can feel like um, when you are singing the songs of your God and your language in a space that does not share that language. It was powerful. So when God births the church and everyone's speaking non-native languages, but all praising God, that's, that's a rebellious act. That's a rebellious act that Rome needs to lock down. And we cannot understand the story of Pentecost unless we understand it as the reversal of Babel. So for those of you who know the story of the Tower of Babel, um, it comes early, early, early on. So right after the flood and right before God goes to Abraham and says, I'm gonna make a great nation, Israel, from you. There's this scene, this really interesting story where a bunch of people get together. And at that time, we're told there's just one language. There's one language and they get together and they say, let's make a big tower. And that'll, you know, that'll show everyone how cool we are. And so they start building a tower. And then God's like, I gotta thwart this. I gotta stop this. And so what he does is he confuses their languages. So he basically, I guess, gives the gifts of other languages. So no one is speaking, no one's able to communicate anymore. And so the tower stops and they all disperse. So that's at the start. And then right after that, he calls a single people, a single language for the sake of all people later on. And then we get to the birth of the new creation, the new humanity. And what do we see? We don't see the disbursement of languages. We see the, uni the, the uniting together of languages. We see the coming together. He draws all nations back 
and to the family. He unites them into a single message, but people are now uh, praising God in their non-native language so that no one can claim power over it. No one can claim power over this family, but Jesus alone, but Jesus, but the word of God. So in the Pentecost event, what's so important that we realize um, is that the language of the other is at the center of the church. The language of the other is at the center of the church. So when we come back to our passage, basically that's what's going on. Um, the Corinthians had encountered the spirit of Jesus. And unfortunately, and I know this is so problematic for us and for our faith at times, you'll, you'll realize the more you like step into this story and follow this God, he does things without explaining it to us. <laughs> he does things and lets us sort of stumble and figure it out, and make mistakes. Um, and I don't know why. I really don't have a, a satisfying answer other than it just keeps us utterly dependent on him, turning toward him. But evidently the spirit had manifested his presence on the Corinthians and they had been enabled to speak in different languages. And so Paul is attempting to sort of help inject the way of love into the way they understand the gifts of God. And so if we use that, that, that framework of the language of the others at the center of the church, then in this passage, there, there are two others, if you will. There are your brother and sister who do confess Jesus as Lord. Um, and there's the outsider, those who are present in the community or good friends of the community, um, but they're not sure about Jesus yet. So those are the two possible others. And, and essentially what Paul is saying is that whatever, however the spirit um, manifest his presence in you, you can be sure that it's, that it's God if it's the language of the other on your lips. If it's not serving yourself, but serving them. So Paul writes, those who speak in tongues build up themselves, but those who prophesy build up the church. I would like all of you to speak in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, that might seem a little confusing. Evidently, the gift of tongues had sort of evolved into two separate gifts. One, um, when you are given a language that there is no interpretation for. So therefore, says Paul, that language builds you up, builds you up. It, it allows you to tap in to the mysteries of God, to the worship of God that is between you and God. So it builds you up. But there's also a form of tongues that has interpretation. And so if you don't have that form of interpretation with it, then you can be certain that you shouldn't be sharing it abroad because <laughs> it doesn't build anyone up. They don't understand what you're saying. And there's also the gift of prophecy. Prophecy, which is the, is the gift of language, but it's the gift of a revelation. Uh, I think prophets get a bad rap because generally when we think of prophets, we think of fortune tellers, don't we? We think of like uh, the crystal ball and you know, predicting something that's gonna happen. And though that's an element of it, that's not really what the prophet represents. The prophet represents someone who is able to see society, see their people, cut through their illusions, cut through their deceptions, and sort of um, speak in a way that awakens us to what we really value, to what we, to what we really believe. And so Paul goes, the prophets speak in words that convict us. The prophets, the, the word of prophecy speaks in a way 
and it calls us to account. It cuts through our illusions. It reveals our hearts and that builds us up. But the expectation for both, the expectation for both, the expectation of what the word of God does is build up, build up. If no one's being built up, that is not God. And if it's only you being built up, stay quiet about it. That's not for anyone else to know. And Paul goes on to say, building up cannot happen without communication, right? We gotta communicate, we gotta understand each other. So he gives the examples of a flute playing distinct notes. We can't call it music unless we understand that's a C chord or a G chord. At least that's what Anna tells me. Or a bugle calling to battle. How do we know, says Paul, that we're being called to battle unless we understand that sound? There must be communication. Otherwise, I will be a foreigner to you and you will be a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you're eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in them for building up the church. And so if we're looking at communication, communication cannot happen unless we're focusing attention on the other. Focusing attention on the other. So two stories that really illustrate that for me. So I remember one time um, I was coming out of a church service and I was walking back to my car and I heard a voice behind me say, hey man, wait up. Um, I turned around as this guy. I had no idea who he was, no idea. And uh, he goes, hey man, can I, can I pray for you? And of course I was like, of course, you know, like I never want to shut down prayer. I need all the prayer I can get. Um, and so he starts to pray for me and he, and he takes his hand and he, places it on the left side of my face, which um, has a lot of brokenness and, and scars and stuff. And he starts praying really loudly uh, in tongues and, and in English that I would be healed, uh, that when my ear would open, that when my face would be restored, that I would be healed. And as he prayed more and more, I did one of those things where like your eyes are closed, but you're really like looking around, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm just seeing people, you know, stream out of the church and they're looking over at me and I was just so uncomfortable. And I don't, I don't fault the guy. I got angry later, but I don't fault him. He was really trying to listen. He was really trying to listen. The issue is that he wasn't focusing on me. He was focusing on what he thought I needed, right? He wasn't understanding how to communicate with me. He didn't ask me my name. He didn't ask me my story. He didn't ask any questions. He just sort of, assumed he knew what I needed or what he thought God was saying and he just delivered it. Another story, that was a period of my life um, where I was in one of those crossroads periods, right? Like I have two roads and I don't know which one to pick. Um, at my home church, there was a woman and she was just known as the matriarch. She was incredible, incredible English woman. Her and her husband, the most unassuming, boring people had planted a thousand churches in Mozambique. Like they'd spent their entire lives just um, living there and starting communities. And they were really amazing people. So I'm worshiping and I was just, she does, I've never said one word to her. I know her, she doesn't know me. Uh, I was like 22 at the time. And uh, she comes up to me while, while I'm worshiping. And of course my soul is in duress. And she goes, are you Russell? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> She's like, well, Russell, I just feel like I should be, I should pray with you. I was supposed to come over, but I don't know why. And so, of course, I just go, and just vomit everything, <laughs> just crying, telling her she's listening. She's holding my hands and listening and smiling. And then we pray together. And she says things 
as she prays that um, when I had um, had an encounter with, with the Holy Spirit about four years previous, God had said things which I had never shared with anybody. She says those exact phrases. Now, what's the difference between these two? Well, a couple things. One, even the language. When the man came up to me, he says, can I pray for you? With, with this woman, she says, can I pray with you? That's something different there. There's something of, of I have something for you verse, you and I are in this together, building you up. The man assumed he already knew exactly what was being said. When she came up, all she knew was my name and that her heart was prompted to have a conversation with me. That's it, that's it. And then she'd ask, what, you know, what's going on? And then we were able to talk. And then from that, as she was listening, she got more of a sense of what to pray with. And she did, and she was spot on. But the biggest difference is that communication can only happen, especially when God's involved. And God does speak, friends, and it won't be clear all the time. You'll have a, a hunch, you'll have a, a sense, but you won't know it's right. Step into it, but step into it with humility, knowing that God's desire is to build up the church. And communication happens through attention to the other. Through attention to the other. I love this church. I love you. And one of the reasons I love you guys is I know we have all ends of the spectrum. We have people here who are really uncomfortable with this sermon today. <laughs> I know that. And uh, we have people here who are like, preach. You know, you're just preaching to the choir. Um, but I think that there's a word for both of us. There's a challenge for both of us in this passage or wherever you might be in between. And perhaps maybe the question is, what would it look like for the language of the other to be at the center of your focus? What would it look like, no matter where you are, for the language of the other to be at the center of your focus? To those who are uncomfortable with the idea of being given um, words in different languages, what would it look like to actually desire it, as Paul says, to, to seek the greater gifts. I, would, I venture to guess that you're uncomfortable and you're not seeking it, why? Because you're at the center of your focus. Because you're very rational, I get it. I like to think I am too. And you don't wanna be put in uncomfortable situations, right? But Paul says, seek the greater gifts. What would it look like to take this word as true? to put yourself out there in uncomfortable situations, to say, God, I'm listening. God, speak. To not have yourself at the center of it all. I still remember. Um, so I come from, uh, I spent some time in the tradition. I'm still part of the tradition, which very much uh, affirms and, and welcomes speaking in tongues. Um, but I was one of those guys who said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a Pentecostal, but I don't speak in tongues. I don't do it. I enjoyed that badge. Why? Because uh, sometimes uh, parts of this group can say that everyone has to speak in tongues. And I don't think that's biblical or true at all. And so um, I was very much like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not, I, I affirm the name, but you know, I don't speak in tongues myself. Until one Sunday. <laughs> um, it was actually cliche. It was Pentecost Sunday of 2014. It's like, usually God isn't cliche, but uh I guess he was that day. 
And um, we'd had service. I was in Portland at the time, Portland, Oregon. Um, I was an intern at the church. We'd had service. And then that night we were hanging out with the pastor on his back porch. And over the last couple of weeks, my, my heart had just been stirring, just stirring. And I sensed, I sensed God prompting me. And the prompting was this. The prompting was, ask this group of people, there are about four of us, ask them to pray for you. Ask them to, to lay hands on you, you know, to grab your shoulder, give you a squeeze, and to pray for you. And the prayer was simple. The prayer was that your cynicism regarding me would be taken away. That was the prayer. And of course, I wasn't 100% certain it was God, but I had this prompting that wouldn't go away. I didn't know what to do with. And I was like, okay. So I was like, guys, this is gonna sound weird. Only it didn't for them. They're like, oh, of course, yeah. And, um, and they started praying for me. And as they prayed, we were worshiping and praying. And then suddenly my prayers took different utterances, which I knew to be praising God. And I don't have language to explain exactly what happened other than that. And then I was like, crap, what do I do with this now? <laughs> I lost my badge. Um, but to those of you who are uncomfortable in the room, what would it look like to start praying that your cynicism would be taken away? And I know, I know you've been hurt. I had a dude laying hands on me in the middle of a parking lot, asking that my ear would be open and be like, bro, join the line. I've been praying that for years. Right? I, I've, and that, that, that does something to you. That hurts. Or when you see televangelists who abuse something, when you see it come out that a guy is telling his congregation that he needs a fourth private jet because, quote, Jesus wouldn't be caught riding on a donkey. I thought it was the onion. <laughs> I really did. I'm like, he rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. Like, what in the world? I get it, guys. I get that abuse happens and it's so terrifying to actually take steps of faith. I get it. But it's real. He wants you. He's got all the time in the world. And just because a song has been sung poorly for a long time, does not mean it's not a beautiful song when it's sung correctly. Just because it's been sung poorly does not mean it's not beautiful when it's sung correctly. And to those in the room who are quite comfortable with, with the spiritual gifts, again, the language of the other, what would it look like to be eager for the gifts so as to build up others and not to build up yourself? Because many times that's the form it takes. There's an eagerness for these gifts, but not, not really to build others up, but as a way to convince yourself that you're saved, <laughs> as, as an antidote for your fear. We're all afraid of dying, and we're all afraid of, does Jesus really love me? And so if, if I can have a spiritual encounter that, that I clearly didn't fabricate, then I definitely know that, that God's on my side, right? What would it be to desire God to move in your life, to make yourself available for the spirit to speak, but not to build yourself up at all, but to build up everyone else. What would that look like? For the language of the other 
not your own language, not what makes sense to you, but the language of the other to be at the center of the church. There's another other in this passage. There's the outsider. There's the person who's not a follower of Jesus, who's sitting here today and thinking, what in the world did I walk into today? <laughs> we're not weird, or at least we're weird in time and with good reason. Um, but Paul speaks to that as well. What does he say? Verse 15 through 19, he goes, what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can the outsider say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you are saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is built up. Look, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The language of the other is at the center of the church. When we think about that in our modern context, I think uh, there's a great book called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, uh, which I did not read because it's like a thousand pages long. Um, but there's a nice Cliff Notes version by James K. Smith, which basically is like 200 pages and covers his, his main idea. So it feels like you're not missing anything. Um, but he's talking about sort of the, the, the modern age, the modern age. And he has two phrases, which I think are really fascinating for all of us. We're all sort of privy to this in some, in some form or fashion. But these two phrases about the modern age, especially in the West, is, is the buffered self in the disenchanted world. The buffered self in the disenchanted world. Historically, pre the enlightenment, um, uh, people had a worldview where the heavens and the earth interacted, where gods could, could take form, where, where that was a magic rock over there, where there was, there was um, where there were, there were heavens present in the earth. But post the enlightenment, we sort of cut off the heavens from the earth. And then the earth really became all that was, or at least all that mattered. And the earth was like a watch that if you just learned the right levers, you could learn how it all worked and you could understand it. So there was no room in the modern age, in this disenchanted world, or in yourself, in a buffered self. That is to say, you have a nice you know, layer, a nice buffer so that no one can speak right? No divine agents can speak. Uh, there's no room for any, for, any, um, for any divinity to inspire or to terrify or to explain why. And so what we lost, says Smith, is final causality. We understand, or uh, sorry, understanding something became no longer a matter of understanding. It's telos. And it's telos is a Greek word that means it's end, why it was created. And we already know all this, right? It's, we're good at answering the how questions or getting to the how questions, but we don't really get to the why, to the why. Or maybe we do get to the why, but it's a really unsatisfying why. It's a why that doesn't seem to do justice with the fullness of the human creature, with, with things like art and music, right? It, it, it's, it doesn't get at that. So the modern, the modern statement, the modern person's statement is, I don't believe in God but I miss him, isn't it? I don't believe in God because we've cut off the heavens from the earth, but there's something in me that really misses him because we're answering all the why questions, or I'm sorry, we're answering all the how questions, but no one's telling me why it works like this or why it happened this way other than just it did. That's not satisfying enough. But what we find in the church, interestingly, 
is the meeting of the imagination and the mind. You find mythology and philosophy align here and do not contradict. Paul says, I'm going to pray with my spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind. I love Chesterton's phrase. Chesterton writes, the rivers of mythology and philosophy run parallel and do not mingle till they meet in the sea of Christ. When you look at history and, and people's worldviews, you have... Um, you have legends like where did Rome come from or why did Rome come? And you're told because Romulus and Remus got in a fight and Romulus won. That's why Rome came. Mythology, that answers the why questions. But you also have the laws of Confucius, which get really good at the how. How to live a good life. How to be a good human. You have both of those historically. But what you find in the church is that you bring both of them together in perfect measure intersect and don't ever leave. So what do you see? Well, you see the same man who preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which everyone, whether they follow Jesus or not, everyone looks at the Sermon on the Mount and says, that is some of the best ethical instruction the world has ever known. I've never met anyone to look at it and be like, no, I wouldn't follow that. I've never met someone to be like, no, not for me. No, no. Everyone looks at this and goes, this man, he understood Right? Well, the same man who preaches that sermon also raises Lazarus from the dead. You can't separate those two. You can't separate those. They go together. The same group of people who were given visions and revelations and deep utterances of tongues, which do not have explanation. That same group of people, when they are scattered across the face of the earth, where they pop up in new countries, new places, they establish orphanages, they establish hospitals, they establish schools. Look at the history of missionary, the missionary journey. Where you see Christians go, you see orphanages pop up. You see schools pop up. So the same group of people who have a really kind of weird worldview about God being present in the world, about not cutting off the heavens from the earth, about God speaking to us and acting, they are also the same people who care so deeply or at least should, at our best, we care so deeply about how the world is, about the weakest of the world, the weakest of society. You can't separate these. And then when you look at the center point, the absolute center of the gospel, when we're told the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that is called the incarnation. God incarnated himself in a form that we could understand. What do we see? I love how Christian Wyman puts it. He goes, it's the meeting of the ultimate with the intimate. The meeting of the ultimate, the ultimate God, all the hows with the intimate, the whys of you and me. You have mythology and philosophy that perfectly overlap and do not contradict. So we don't have to choose between the spiritual and the rational here. That's a, you don't have to choose, you have both. The two work together in this story crafting a new understanding of how the world is, the world where God is present, the world where the creator God is present in our hearts and in our lives and in our communities. So at Hope Brooklyn, we try, we try to use language that avoids Christianese. We try to think through what we're saying that communicates with people such that the language of the other, the language of our society is at the center. And, and, and sometimes at some points there's, there's an impasse and we, we just gotta speak honestly and say God is present. 
which they'd be like, well, I deny that. Like, that's, I get that. That's fair point, fair point. But that's, you know, like we're working at that to engage the mind and the heart, the how and the why. In the empire, it's my world, it's my language. In the church, it's his world and it's their language, which is so incredible. And I wanna invite the, the worship team back up and just close with this. The language of the other is at the center of the church. Whoever the other is, the language of the other is at the center of the church. That's an astonishing idea if you really consider it. That is such radical hospitality that something's being birthed, a family's being birthed, but basically you're being invited in and we're gonna speak your language. We're gonna cook your food. You don't have to come to us. We are gonna come to you in every way. That is a radical idea. And when you're looking at this, you wanna ask, where did this astonishing idea come from? And as you start pulling back, because obviously when we're looking at 1 Corinthians, we're looking at a micro level at the church, like the Corinth church, the church of, of Hope Brooklyn. When you start pulling back to a macro or a meta level, you see it. We can say the language of the other is at the center of the church because the language of the other is at the center of God. The church itself, and as we know, church does not mean building walls. Church means people, body. The church itself is God's incarnate language to the world. The word of God became flesh so as to communicate to us. But then the word of God transferred onto all flesh, into all language. So the language of the other is at the center of the church because in God's very self, he doesn't speak his own language. He speaks ours. He speaks yours. The language of the other is at the center of God. Just this last week, I was at my denomination's conference, our denomination's conference uh, in Seattle. And it was, there was this moment uh, toward the beginning um, where we're an international movement and um, we recognized uh, the leaders of, um, of every nation that was represented there. Um, and there were 87 countries in all that were represented. And there was like this little video montage and it was showing sort of the leaders, um, the husband and the wife, um, and it was uh, saying their name and sort of they were standing um, or sitting in their church. And it was like five minutes long and there was you know, really beautiful music underneath it, like a good videographer. And it was so unbelievably moving, guys. It was so unbelievably moving. Why? Because I'm looking at 87 different pictures at every shade of skin color, at, at dialects that I can't even begin <laughs> to understand. And each of these faces is Jesus is the body of Christ. The word has filled all words with the praises of God. Guys, there's nothing like it. There's no movement like it. Every movement can be claimed by a certain group, by a certain culture, but that's not with the church because at the birth of the church, you see the message is the same. 
that the one God has come for all people, but it's filled with all sorts of languages. No one can claim it. You see every shade, every tribe, every language smiling and you see in their smiles that they have been touched by the living God and they're saying Jesus is in charge. It's so incredible. It's so incredible. No language can take it and claim it, claim power over it. God has translated his word into every language. The word has filled the words with the story of God. It's an incredible family to be a part of. It's an incredible God to serve. We pray with me. Lord, we just want to meditate on that thought. That not our language, but their language, whoever there is, is at the center of the church. That Jesus, you said you were the word of God in flesh and that it was good for you to leave because when you left, you could pour out your spirit such that the church would become your body to the world the church would now be the word of God communicating your message. And the church, the word of God communicates in every language. At the center of who you are, God, is the language of the other. You don't make people come to you, you come to them. There's no God like you. There's no story like yours. You don't make people come to you. You don't have to get your life right and then come to God. No, just open your eyes and allow him to speak to you. And his words are the same. I am for you. I am with you. I so love you. Just be in relationship with me. And then thank you for the privilege of being able to see Jesus all the far stretches of this globe where your word is being proclaimed, where your message is being spoken and lived, where the church itself embodies this. Would you give us hearts for one another? Would you fill us with faith so we don't have to stop worrying about whether you love us? We know you do. Your love is gratuitous. It is overflowing. And then we are enabled and empowered to communicate your message in the other's language, not in our own. Lord, wherever people may be in this room right now, I pray that they would sense your voice. I pray that they would even right now silence um, any fears or any cynicism. They would lift their hands or at least open them and be like, speak, God. Speak, Jesus. What do you want to say to me? Thank you for this family, for this family that no one can claim um, as it's coming from them, which means it's all through you, Jesus. It's all for you. We are your body with so many languages representing it at the center of it. 
Give us courage to step into that reality. Give us courage to open our hearts to you. And thank you for your patience. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.